Every time I face the waves, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to fear the storm. Just because I hear it roar, I don't want to fear the storm. I don't want to fear the storm. Say the word and I will set my feet upon the sea till I'm dancing in the deep. Peace be still, you are here so it is well. Even when my eyes can't see, I will trust the voice that speaks. I'm not gonna be afraid Cause these waves are only waves I'm not gonna be afraid I'm not gonna be afraid I'm not gonna fear the storm You are greater than its roar I'm not gonna fear the storm I'm not gonna fear at all Peace be still, say the word and I will Set my feet upon the sea Till I'm dancing in the deep Peace be still, you are here so it is well Even when my eyes can't see I will trust the voice that speaks Good morning, Good Shepherd, and I want to wish you a very happy Mother's Day. I think probably many of us have come to have a new appreciation for our mothers with the lockdown, with all the extra time at home and extra food preparation probably and and homeschooling and many other things. We come to see anew the the many things that uh, our mothers do for us. But not just the physical things, the way that they 
love us and give us their affection, encouragement, and so so forth. Uh, Mothers are a wonderful gift from God. And so we say happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. And if you have your mother with you still, I hope that you, you may not be able to take her out for lunch today, but I hope that you'll just uh, give her an extra hug and, and tell her how much you appreciate her if you have that opportunity. Well, today we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. And we've been looking at the messages of Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I want to just remind you of how we we view those seven churches. First, let me remind you that these are individual churches in Asia Minor, real, literal churches. And they reflect conditions that existed then and that exist now in churches worldwide. These churches represent the kinds of churches that we find in every age. They also represent conditions that exist in individual Christian lives. So you can be uh, a, a member of a particular church that's characteristic of one of these types of churches, but you yourself can have the characteristics of another particular church. Also, I believe that these characteristics reflect periods of time in church history or church ages. And uh, I uh, have put an appendix of sort on the website for those of you who might be uh, interested. And today we come to the church at Laodicea. Uh, The church at Laodicea represents all apostate churches that have existed throughout history. And in many ways, Uh, reflects the age in which we live today. Uh, This is the the last and the worst of the seven churches that Jesus addressed. And uh, we begin with the kind of the downward spiral with the church at Ephesus, which left its first love and, and grew cold. Then Smyrna was a bright spot. Smyrna was a bright spot, and it continued in spite of the persecution that it endured. But then in Pergamum, uh, that church was characterized by compromise, by Balaam and, and the worldliness that he brought in. Thyatira was characterized by corruption. Even further, that uh, worldliness and the paganness was brought into the church. Sardis then ultimately becomes a a corpse. It's dead. It's a dead church. Philadelphia represents a renewal, a revival. It was the committed church, the the missionary church. And then we come again to Laodicea. It's what I'm going to call a cultural church. It's an apostate church, but it's it's reflecting the culture rather than Christ. You see, even the church at Sardis, though it was dead, had a few believers that were there. But as far as we can tell, the church at Laodicea was totally unregenerate. It was an apostate church. It reflects, again, the culture rather than Christ. And it's been given the grim distinction of being the only one of the seven churches for which Christ had no con commendation, no positive things to say. And so we want to read what Christ did have to say to this church at Laodicea. And we're going to look today at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Revelation 3 and 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, that your shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I say to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me, down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of God. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this revelation which you have given to us. And we pray that you would help us today to see our own need, to recognize our need, to hear your call upon our lives. And we pray for the grace to be able to respond to you and to receive true eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me give you just a little context as we begin to look at the letter to the church at Laodicea. The city was located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and about 100 miles east of Ephesus, which kind of completes the circle uh, there on the postal route in Asia Minor. And Laodicea was a part of a triad of cities. Its sister city uh, uh, were Colossae, which was about uh, 10 miles north, and then Heropolis, which was about six miles to, excuse me, uh, Colossae was about 10 miles to the south, and Heropolis was about six miles to the north. Now, like so many cities of that day, uh, it was built upon a, a plateau several hundred feet in the air uh, designed to uh, resist uh, military attacks. Now, its, its vulnerability, however, lay in the fact that it had to have its water piped in about six miles by aqueducts, which made their water susceptible to being dammed up or diverted by opposing forces. And so Laodicea was, was known throughout the Roman Empire for its wealth, its wool industry, and its ISAV. And it was as the as the it was the banking industry of or center of Asia, and it was the most prosperous of the seven cities. Many large, beautiful homes were built there, and you can still see those ruins today. Laodicea also had a flourishing clothing industry. It was famous for this unique breed of sheep that produced a a soft black wool. And uh, this wool was woven into special clothes and carpets that were highly sought after and were very expensive. The city was also noted for its medical practice, and especially for an ISAV, which was exported all over the Greco-Roman world. Its secret ingredient was from a naturally occurring mineral uh, that was uh, discovered by a medical school that was associated there with the temple of Asclepius. You remember that god, that uh, the god of healing, where they had all the snakes that lay in the in the temple. And Laodicea was kind of a, a Bank of America, a Macy's, and a and a Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. And this this explains some of the references that we see to this letter, uh, or in this letter to the church in Laodicea. Now, it's it's important to understand that the church at Laodicea was apostate. You say, well, what is an apostate? Well, technically, an apostate is someone who renounces their religious beliefs 
or turns to another uh, belief system. So, but, but it can also, there's a sense in which an apostate church is a group of people that meet in the name of Christ and practice the outward rituals of, that, of, a, of a church and, and who are acting as though they are true believers, but in reality are unregenerate. Now, a term that we've come to, to hear recently from well-known, some well-known people in the Christian circles is the word deconversion. Have you heard that deconversion? That's where their way of saying that I don't believe in Christianity anymore. But deconversion is a misnomer because these people were never truly converted in the first place. But it, it's also their way of saying that, that I have turned to a new belief system. I've, I've, I've come to another way of seeing the world. And I've found something that I find more fulfilling or satisfying. And surveys show us that we have more and more people who grew up in church and once identified as Christians, but now refer to themselves as nuns. That is, that's a uh, survey category uh, choice. Uh, they ask, what is your religious affiliation? And, and one of the options is none. And so many people are checking none. They call them nuns. And what, they're, what we're really talking about here with these people is cultural Christianity. See, Christianity has had an influence on their lives, but they have never been truly born again. They've never been transformed by Christ. And in fact, what they would say is that they're getting over Christianity. They're coming out of it. And some continue in church with the outward forms and values of Christianity, but they're unregenerate. Others willfully reject Christianity in favor of a materialistic uh, evolutionary worldview. So, so here's the question. What does Christ have to say to a, to a lukewarm apostate church? What does the church of cultural Christianity need more than anything? Well, what they really need is truth. And in this letter... Christ offers five qualities of transforming truth. The first thing that a, that a lukewarm church needs is confirmed truth. In verse 14, he says, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Here Christ identifies himself with three divine titles that all relate to truth. And first he says he is the absolute truth. That's what it means by the amen. See, in, in Isaiah 65, 16, God is twice called Yahweh Amen. Literally translated, it's God truth. And amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for truth. And it, it's also uh, can be translated affirmation or certainty. It refers to something that is fixed and unchangeable. In other words, we're talking about absolute truth. And amen is used in the scripture to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. So when you say amen to something that someone says, what you're saying is that's truth. I affirm that. That's, that's absolutely correct. And in the New Testament, when Jesus says in the, in the King James, verily, verily, or in the New American Standard, truly, truly, he's literally saying, <clears throat> amen, amen, or truth, truth. And Jesus is the God of truth. He's truth incarnate. And so when Jesus speaks, it is the confirmation of truth. It's certain. And so when Jesus speaks, see, you don't ever have to fact check what he says. You know that it's absolute truth. 
But Jesus also says that he is the dependable truth. He is, as it says there, the faithful and true witness. You know, we live in a world where truth is is hard to come by. I mean, do you believe everything that you hear in this world? Do you believe what the Communist uh, Party of China tells us? Uh, do you believe everything that the media says? Now, some people call it the, the fake news. I mean, well, here's the question. How do you know when something is true, when it's fake? Do you believe the FBI or the CIA or the EPA or the WHO or the CDC? I mean, are they dependable? You see, do you believe everything on the Internet? Uh, Do you trust the giant tech companies who are now the censors of what we see and what we don't see? Do you trust them to take out the things that are false and leave only the things that are true? You see, it's hard to find a dependable, true witness. But Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness witness. He is the truth, and everything that he says is absolutely, completely dependable. Whatever he testifies to, you can rely upon. And he's also the source of truth. It says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the English translation there is a little ambiguous, but there is no ambiguity in the Greek translation. The word beginning there does not mean that Christ was the first person that God created, but rather that Christ is himself the source or the origin of all that was created. He created everything that is through his great power. And he is, in essence, the source of truth. He created everything that is, so he is the source of all truth. And Jesus is not only the source of the physical creation, but he is the source of the new spiritual creation. As it says in Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, and Jesus has demonstrated that truth by raising from the dead. The resurrection is the confirmation of this great truth. That was the truth that the unregenerate church in Laodicea desperately needed to know. See, you can absolutely depend upon the risen Christ to make you a new creation. Through him, you can experience genuine eternal life. So that the first thing that Jesus offers is confirmed truth. And then he offers confrontational truth. People who are lukewarm need confrontational truth. It says in verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, as in the previous letters, Jesus begins by addressing their deeds. And as we have seen, our deeds don't save us, but they do reveal our true spiritual condition. And Jesus says that you are neither hot nor cold, but you are lukewarm. Now, that's spiritually speaking. You say, well, why does Jesus use this analogy, this spiritual analogy? Well, uh, Laodicea was located between two other cities, as we saw previously. Heropolis, to the north, had significant volcanic activity, which produced their famous relaxing hot springs. Colossae, to the south, was known for its cool, refreshing natural spring water. And Laodicea sat on the edge of the volcanic region so that its water was affected by the heat, but it didn't get hot, it just got warm. But what was worse was that that volcanic activity left sulfur deposits in the water. So it was not only an unpleasant temperature, but it was also a horrible smelling. It was almost toxic. 
It was barely drinkable, and if you did drink it, it left you feeling nauseated. I don't know if you've ever been around sulfur water, but it it smells like what many people say, rotten eggs. And and I remember when I was a boy, I was out, I was really thirsty, and I drank some cold sulfur water coming out of a pipe in the side of a mountain. Because it was cold, I didn't notice the smell at first, but as I swallowed it and began to taste it, oh, I began to realize, oh, this is horrible. And and for hours afterwards, after I had drank that water, I felt like I was just going to throw up. I just kept tasting that old rotten egg uh, taste. And See, that's why the Laodiceans had to have their water piped in because of that. It was warm, it was lukewarm, and it was horrible tasting. And Jesus said to this church, spiritually, you're like your water. You're neither hot nor cold, but you are lukewarm, and you make me sick to my stomach, and I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, if you're, if, if you're spiritually hot, well, will that describe someone who is a believer, uh, who has been transformed by Christ, who has some enthusiasm, some zeal? Uh, it's, it's someone maybe like Peter. Peter was, was hot spiritually. He, he was excited about walking with Christ. He was serving Christ. If you're spiritually cold, well, that describes someone who is an unbeliever, someone who's apathetic, someone who's uninterested, who ultimately rejects Christ. They don't make any pretense about it. They're not hypocrites. Maybe a good example of that would be the unrepentant thief on the cross. Uh, he was cold-hearted down to the, to the last moment to, until his death, uninterested, apathetic, and cold. What about spiritually lukewarm? Well, th- that's what I would call a religionist uh, who is outwardly religious in terms of ritual and, and language. And because of their religious practice, you see, these people are self-satisfied. They're also deceived. A good example of that might be the Pharisees. They were content to practice a self-righteous religion. They were clearly hypocrites playing at religion. And Jesus gives us a clear definition of a hypocrite in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. He says, you hypocrites, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain you do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, that's what a hypocrite is. Their words and their heart don't align. And they they live out their selfish human desires in the name of God. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus issues eight woes to the Pharisees. And every time he calls them hypocrites. I'll just read the first one in verse uh, 13. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And notice very carefully that these hypocrites will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, many times the term lukewarm is applied to Christians. But lukewarm and Christian are mutually exclusive terms. If someone is is lukewarm, they're not genuinely saved. Yet they don't openly reject the gospel. They attend church, and they claim to know the Lord, only they are deceived, and they mislead others. Now, why did Jesus say, you know, I wish that you were cold or hot? I mean, if somebody is lukewarm, wouldn't they be closer to being hot? No. You see, it's easier to reach someone 
with a cold heart than it is to reach someone with a lukewarm heart. At least the person with a cold heart knows where they stand. But someone with a lukewarm heart is a person that thinks they don't need Christ. They are self-deceived. And that's why, you see, they need confrontational truth. That's why Jesus came at them so hard. That's why he was so direct, you see, because when he would preach, they would say, well, he's not preaching to us. He's preaching to some of those sinners. These are not people that take subtle hints. They are deeply rooted in their self-satisfaction. And so Jesus says in verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, we know that this church was full of hypocrites because it says what they say and what they are are two different things. The people of Laodicea were not only wealthy materially, they thought they were rich spiritually. And like the the Pharisees, they thought that they were righteous on their own. They didn't need Christ. They didn't need his righteousness. In fact, it says they had need of nothing. They were self-satisfied and they were deceived. He says, you do not know. You don't know your true spiritual condition. And that's why they needed confrontational truth. They needed to to see that they are truly wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They were rich materially, but bankrupt spiritually. They were rich in spiritual pride, but bankrupt in saving grace. And so, like, like so many people in this Laodicean age, they considered themselves to be good people. They're like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, and he said, A good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, he considered himself good. He claimed to have kept the Ten Commandments since he was a youth. But Jesus said to him, if you're not God, you're not good. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. In Romans, he says, there is none good. No, not one. In other words, there are no exceptions. There are none good. But you see, the lukewarm person cannot accept that. That bothers a religionist a lot. See, and people in our culture can't accept that. It's difficult to to find anyone in our culture that doesn't think of themselves as a, quote, good person. And that's why our culture, you see, needs confrontational truth. Lukewarm people need to see their spiritual condition. But they also need, with that, redeeming truth. In verse 18, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, Jesus could have instantly judged this church full of unredeemed hypocrites, but he doesn't. Instead, he graciously offers them redeeming truth. He offers them genuine salvation. And his appeal is, is a play on three features of the city of Laodicea, the things that they were most known for, the things that they were most proud of, uh, which was their wealth, their wool, and their eyesalve. And and when he says to them, I advise you to buy these things from me, you see, he's not saying that salvation can be bought or earned. He's saying that in the same way that the Roman Empire turns to you 
for your financial services and your unique black wool and your your special eye salve that you need to turn to me to provide for you uh, spiritual riches and, and spiritual clothes and spiritual sight. The, the buying here is the same as that of the invitation found in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. It, there it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. You see, to buy is a metaphor for making an exchange. Uh, when you when you buy something, you typically give money in exchange for something that you need. If you're hungry and thirsty, then you give money in exchange for bread and wine or food and, and milk. But here, you see, money is not given exchange for what is needed. Here, the need is satisfied without money, without cost. In other words, the need is met by grace. So what do we, what do we give in exchange? What do we give God for His grace and His mercy? Well, all we can give Him is our faith in His provision. All that we can give Him is our pride and our self-sufficiency. All we can give Him is our recognition that we are, that we are miserable and wretched and poor and naked and blind and lost. See, in exchange for that, Christ offers you His righteousness. And that's called repentance. When you turn from your pride and your self-sufficiency and you receive Christ's provision. Christ advised the, the Laodiceans to buy from Him three provisions. All of them relate to true redemption. First, He says, you need, you need from me Gold refined by fire so that you might become rich. See, they needed gold that was free from impurities, representing the, the, the priceless riches of true salvation. They needed gold that was true and genuine spiritually. Now, I... I suppose that probably all of us have stood in a convenience store and watched people buying lottery tickets. I remember watching one man. He had bought some beer and then some cigarettes. And with the money that was remaining, and he didn't look like he had much other than that, he began to buy lottery tickets. And I kept thinking, you know, that's crazy. Here's a guy with nothing, and he's, he's bought beer and cigarettes, and now he's buying lottery tickets. But I began to think, you know, that's what he values. See, we invest in what we value. He valued wealth. In fact, excessive wealth. I mean, he wanted to be a millionaire. I wanted to hit that lottery, you know. And you see, the question we have to ask ourselves sometimes is what is really valuable? What are we investing in? So your soul is the most valuable thing in the universe. It's worth more than the entire world because Jesus says, for what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? See, refined gold pictures the faith that we give in exchange for the provision of Christ. We, by faith, we give that to God. God gives to us his incredible riches of salvation. It stands in contrast to our looking to our own human resources. And Jesus is saying, I advise you to receive the priceless gift of salvation by faith. Otherwise, you are bankrupt. And second, Christ advised them to buy white garments. In Isaiah 61, 10, he says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. White garments represent the righteousness of Christ. 
And Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 tells us that when we clothe ourselves in our own righteousness, that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Christ says, you need to, you need to exchange your filthy rags for my perfect righteousness. Another picture of redemption through Christ. And finally, Christ advised the, this church to buy eye salve to anoint their eyes so that they could see. See, he's saying your world-famous eye salve can't do anything for your spiritual blindness. You need to exchange your dependence upon your own human understanding for the anointing of the Holy Spirit who can open your eyes to the truth through the Word of God. So Jesus says, listen, I offer you riches and righteousness and revelation. And you need to exchange your own self Sufficiency for all that I offer to you. Then verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, some argue that the fact that Christ says that he, he loves them and he reproves them indicates that they are believers. Now, there's no doubt that Christ has a special love for his followers, for his people, but the Bible also clearly indicates that, that Christ loves the unredeemed. John 3.16 is a classic example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, because Laodicea outwardly, at least, identified with Christ, they came under the sphere of his concern. That's why he's dealing with them. And he uses the word reprove, and it means to, to expose and to convict. It's a general term that's used in Scripture for God dealing with sinners. He also uses the word discipline, which refers here to punishment. This is a word that Pilate used of Jesus before he had him scourged. You see, God does sometimes allow difficult things to come into our lives to show us the weakness of the things that we're putting our trust in. And the things that we depend upon. God allows difficult things to come in our lives so that we can see that we need Him. You know, and by the way, many people have asked, is the coronavirus pandemic a judgment from God? Well, many famous people have addressed that, and, and I realize that I'm a nobody and no, you know, uh, news outlets are going to be coming and asking me what I think. But I believe that the Bible does address this. In Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, God tells us that when what we call natural disasters occur, that we as the God of people of God, we need to humble ourselves and we need to pray and we need to seek his face and we need to turn from our sin. In other words, we personally need to make the connection between what is happening in our world and in our circumstances and our sin. Now, what it does not say is that you need to figure out what everybody else's sin is and what they need to do. In Luke 13, uh, when a tower fell and killed 18 people, Somebody came and asked Jesus, he says, well, was this because these 18 people were more wicked than the rest? And Jesus said, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's he saying? You need to deal with your own heart. When difficult things come, you need to examine your own life and, and make things, sure things are right between you and God. You're not responsible to make right everything else out there with other people. See, otherwise, you know what we're, we are? We're like the Laodiceans. You see, we are rich and in need of nothing, and we're looking at the world and their problems rather than looking at our own hearts. That's what a lukewarm person does. And number four, 
Jesus gives to this lukewarm church comforting truth. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. See, this is Jesus' evangelistic invitation to this church. Christ, I want you to notice, is not in this church. Christ is outside of this church. And I think that shows us that you can be a member of Christ's church and not really belong to Christ. But Christ calls this church to salvation. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And here we see God's sovereignty in salvation. He takes the initiative. He knocks to awaken us to our need. This with his confrontational truth. His spirit works to bring conviction to our hearts. He makes us aware of his redeeming truth. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is his offer of salvation. But we also see man's responsibility in salvation. You see, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, we must respond to the call of Christ on our life. Salvation is a choice that we make in response to God's offer of salvation. And then we see his comforting truth. He says, if we are willing to repent, he says, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. If you open the door, he will come into your life and he will have a relationship with you, a personal relationship, a relationship that is reciprocal. I will dine with him and he with me. A real relationship with the living God. And we will enjoy that time, his wonderful fellowship. I came across a story recently about an incident that was recorded in the journal of a circuit-riding preacher. And the preacher got caught in a snowstorm in the mountains of Tennessee and lost consciousness in this freezing blizzard. But his horse carried him to a cabin. When he regained consciousness, he heard the the crackling of a fire, and when he looked up, he saw a, a bearded man leaning over him and heard him mumbling curses as he was trying to open his mouth to get some broth in. And when his head became a little clearer, he recognized this man as what he describes as a notorious outlaw and blasphemer. And this man and his wife had uh, nursed this preacher back to life. And when the day came for him to leave, the preacher put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out all the money that he had and he offered it to this man and his wife for rescuing him and saving his life. But the man refused his money and he said, he said, if, you'd, if you had come to my house as a preacher, I would have shot you. But when you came last night frozen, I couldn't turn you away. So you keep your money and go on your way. But the preacher felt that he ought to say something to this man. And so he said, well, before I go, would it be all right if I read the Bible and pray? And the man was starting to shake his head and his wife very quickly, she goes, go ahead, Parson, go ahead. And the man again shook his head and he said, 20 years ago, the Almighty took our son, our little boy, and I said, no man representing him will ever, ever, ever come into my house. But his wife said, with tears in her eyes, Parson, go ahead, please, please read and pray. The preacher read the 15th chapter of Luke. You know that story of the prodigal son and the older brother. And then he got down on his knees to pray. And as he was getting on his knees, he, he began to whisper a prayer in his heart to God. He said, God, 
he said, oh, Lord, is there any way to reach this man for thee? And then he prayed this prayer. Dear Lord, last night when I came to this cottage, I was unconscious. And this man opened the door of his home and took care of me and nursed me back to life. But Lord, thou hast been at this door over 20 years with outstretched hands, and they've done nothing but slam the door in thy face. Oh Lord, help this man to open the door of his home to thee. And the preacher said that when he opened his eyes, that that big burly man went to the door of that cabinet, opened it wide. And he stood there looking out at the, at the bright sun, the melting snow after the blizzard. And he stood there for a while. And then he said, come in. And then he waved his hand. Come in. Then he turned and looked at the preacher as though he was surprised. And he said, he came in. You know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And then he asked the preacher, he said, would you, would you leave your Bible with the page turned down where you read that story? Because I want to get somebody to come and read this to me again and again. And when the time came for um, him to, to be off, he said, when is your next meeting in the mountains? And when he told him, he says, preacher, I'll be there and I'll bring your Bible. And when that time came for that meeting, the, the, the man's wife met the preacher with his Bible and she said to him, Parson, you, you can't believe it. You, you wouldn't know him. You wouldn't know our home. She said, everything is different. And after the parson preached the message, his message on Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, that big burly outlaw walked down front and turned around in front of a bunch of other rough mountain men and women, and he said this, What the parson has preached is the truth. He got on his knees in my house and prayed for the Lord to come in. And I opened the door and I saw him come in. I've never been the same since. And if you'll open the door, Jesus will come in and you'll never be the same. And the preacher said in his journal, it looked to me as if the whole congregation came. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's comforting truth indeed. One brief final thought. Jesus offers this lukewarm church victorious truth. In verse 21, It says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, Jesus invites his church, resurrected and glorified, to reign with him in victory in his millennial kingdom. So Jesus gives to this church that was apostate, that was lukewarm, that was hypocritical, that was self-satisfied. He gives to them confirmed truth, confrontational truth, redeeming truth, comforting truth, and victorious truth. And as that outlaw and reprobate and blasphemer said, If you'll open the door, Jesus will come in and you'll never be the same. As you listen to the song that's sung immediately following during this time of invitation, I hope you will recognize your need for Jesus Christ.
and recognize that he is providing for you everything that you need. And that if you will turn to him, if you will exchange your self-sufficiency, your pride for all of his provision, he will give to you that glorious salvation, eternal life. And you will have a real and personal relationship with him. And if you make that decision today, I would love to hear from you. If you just text that number on your screen, just let me know about that decision. I would love to hear from you. May God bless you. But with the precious